the Stanford's podcast recorded live from the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at Destinations, the holiday and travel show in Olympia. Well, we're all in the mud, but some of us are looking at the stars. Please welcome for our first event of the day, in conversation with Julia, it's Sarah Wheeler. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival and the first event of the day. Sarah Wheeler, Julia Wheeler, no relation, but Wheeler squared has to be a good thing, I think. Uh, welcome, Sarah. Um, you're here to talk about uh, mud and stars. This is really a book looking behind what we think of as Russia, isn't it? It's going beyond the news. I hope so, yes. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, Russia was the first country I ever went to. I was 11 years old, um, and uh, I've been looking over my shoulder at it ever since. Been back a few times on assignment, but not really. And of course, like most people who like reading books, the writers of the Golden Age, which is roughly Pushkin to the death of Tolstoy, so the whole of the 19th century, and then um, a decade or two, a decade really of the 20th. Um, and so I thought I would um, make a journey through Russia in the footsteps of those writers. We'll talk a bit more about the other ones. And um, both following in their footsteps and using them as my guides. Um, so looking at what Russia's like today, reading what they had to say about it, and um, seeing what had changed, which on the whole turned out to be nothing. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, they accompanied me. They were great companions, um, traveling as much as I, I could in Russia. Had you been a great uh, consumer of Russian literature before you set off? Is it something that you've always loved? Yeah, I think so. And by, you know, if you spend a lot of time also in the polar regions, as I have, those doorsteps, Tolstoy and doorsteps, are made for that. Um, because when you have a 10-day whiteout, you need some long books to read. Um, and um, forget about Kindles and so on when the cold temperature sucks all the juice out of your device. It's no good. So, yes, I had read a lot, and I read a lot more, um, uh, particularly of some of the more obscure uh, writers. Well, obs not obscure in Russia or to literary Russians, but uh, perhaps not so well-known here. People like Leskov, who I re really recommend to you, who's wrote short stories and drew very much on the uh, tradition of uh, Russian fairy tales. This great vein of superstition runs through this orthodox country. So yeah, I always have one of their books in my pocket. And um, I learned Russian, um, my last language, very romantic. Um, and um, before I went and when I was there, um, so that I could, uh, my aim was to have basic conversations, which I was able to do, very basic. So and how good is your Russian now? Pretty terrible. I f the thing about learning a language in your 50s is like, as soon as you stop, it's sort of like watching water go down the drain. But I was able to have basic conversations, and I wanted to be able to read a Chekhov short story in the original, which I did do, although I have to say that Chekhov's Russian is very easy compared to others. It's clear. Um, and straightforward, and they have those marvellous bilingual editions where you've got Russian on one side and English mm -hmm. on the other. So I was able to read The Lady with the Little Dog in Russian. Um, and uh, just, you know, I tried to insinuate myself as much as I could inside um, the places I saw and uh, met lots of ordinary people on trains. And so let's, thinking about the language, 
you read that Chekhov play. How useful... Short story, yeah. Sorry, uh, short story. How, um, how different is the everyday language of the Russians that you met there compared to that literary language? In the case of Chekhov, not very. Not very at all. It's not like uh, other... I can't think of one now, but other countries, whether it's the written and the... Um, well, it used to be the case in Greece, so there isn't any more. Uh, Where's Katharabasa and Dimotiki. But um, no, not that different, actually. And um, Russians, even people who uh, don't have a particularly... Ad ad didn't study literature for years on end, um, it's, they're very steeped in... Um, their literature and very proud of it. And I think the writer has a role in Russia that uh, he or she doesn't have here. For example, if anything, this massive thing happens in the news, there's always a writer who shows up on the equivalent of Newsnight, which I don't think we do. And South America is the same. There's a sort of vatic role and very respected. Um, I remember once when I was in the Russian Far East, you just go through Siberia, and keep going, eight time zones from Moscow. Um, and um, I was staying, doing a homestay with this extremely nice couple. And, um, uh, uh, and one day I came back from my peregrinations and they um, were sitting in the kitchen and they had a lump of roe. It wasn't salmon roe, but it was some fish roe, you know, which was quite, quite common. And, they were rubbing it uh, to, that's what you have to do to get the eggs um, to dis disentangle themselves, you end up with a bowl of eggs. And they'd found a badminton racket in landfill. There's nothing there in the Far East, nothing. There's, it's a region the size of France, Chukotka it's called, with no roads, I promise you. And there's nothing there. I saw an um, advert on a telegraph pole, uh, want, somebody wanting to swap his one-bedroom flat for a one-way ticket to Moscow. You know, sort of terrible economic downturn. Anyway, these, this couple, they'd found a badminton racket in landfill. And they had it on the table, and one on each side. They were rubbing this row. And as they were doing it, they were chanting Pushkin's The Bronze Horseman. And my point is, they knew it off by heart. And I reckon this is probably the first time in human history that that's occurred. <laughs> rubbing a row for the... The bronze horseman. But um, I found that uh, they were much more familiar with their writers than we would be here. You start talking about, I don't know, who can I say, Wordsworth around the streets. People, this is sort of rarefied in a way that it isn't in Russia. Mm. And that was very um, enjoyable and beneficial for me. Why, why do you think that is? Why? why? I mean, it's because there's not too much to do in the Russian Far East, but they've got the books. Um, I think that, that even the most basic education has inculcated a love of and reverence for their great authors and also inculcated and how uh, marvellously Russian they are and how being Russian is a great thing. And, you know, we all have our own brands of nationalism and there's a sort of more benign form of nationalism than the nasty one laying waste to Russia now. And that's just, you know, a pride in their country, and I think that um, writers are emblematic of that in the way that, you know, we, we don't have here. Mm. Mm. How many people have been to Russia? Okay, and great. And how many people are thinking of going to Russia or going back to Russia? All right, okay, great. 
Um, so homestays are yeah. an option. How did you organise that? Yeah. What was it like when you yeah. got there? What was yeah. the deal? It's really easy to organise homestays in Russia. Any company will do it for you. Really easy. And you pay um, before you go, so it's all very straightforward. People have to be vetted, but not vetted like in the old days. I remember doing it in Poland about 30 years ago, and one of the conditions was they didn't speak to you. Um, uh, <laughs> Which, which rather takes away the point. Since it did partly, take, rather yeah. take away the point. But there's none of that now. I think they're just vetted from sort of basic, you know, are they, you know, is it clean and nice and so on. And um, it's always the same. It's always a, a flat on the sort of third-ish floor of one of those Khrushchevka, the uh, ubiquitous blocks built in the 50s in the Khrushchev era, blocks of flats, um, which are all the same, and they've got a central stairwell decorated these days with um, jam jars full of uh, yellow water, because that's where people smoke. And um, then it's got a small kitchen, sometimes it'd be one bedroom, and a bathroom, a windowless bathroom, in the middle with a washing line hung over and a um, washing machine with a hose that went over into the bath, goes over into the bath, you know what I mean. And um, uh, perfectly comfortable. Sometimes breakfast is provided, sometimes it isn't. And sometimes the um, owner of the house gives up their uh, bedroom and sleeps on the couch because it's a, obviously a source of income. And people do tend to talk, and you know, that's good for a writer, particularly in the winter. It's dark by five o'clock, what are you going to do? You know, um, and snow on the grounds and all the rest of it. And so you sort of sit there with them. Um, television's always on. Uh, usually Putin uh, bending a piece of metal with his bare hands. <laughs> and they're hunched over their devices, moaning about Ukraine. And, uh, you know, you get something of the rhythm of life. Um, uh, it's usually a family, sometimes a widow, quite often a widow. And the widows are always very keen to um, poke around uh, and your stuff. I remember once I was staying with one woman and um, uh, she, I said, would it be okay if I washed my, uh, some of my smalls overnight and hang them on the, this washing line? Yes, she said, that was fine. And the next morning at breakfast, she said, your knickers are too small. <laughs> To which there was really no answer, but very keen to um, poke their nose into everything. But it's interesting, you know, hearing them, hearing their commentary on the news. Um, very powerful sense of, uh, yes, we know he's a monster, but he's our monster. And it's, you know, very easy to garner public opinion if you control all media outlets. And uh, the thing that the message that's pervade in a very effective way is that any difficulty or any bad thing that happens to Russia, it's caused by the West. So, obviously, people who don't know where that message comes from, they believe it. So, well, everybody says that Crimea is Russia's fault, but it isn't. It's the meddling of the West, and this and that, on and on and on and on. So, um, I think it's quite easy to hold on to power when you've got that kind of um, ability to... It doesn't control the internet, not yet, but it certainly controls all the media. And um, uh, I think they're quite aware of um, what a villain he is. They certainly know about corruption because they live with it every day. On the, it goes, you know, goes down to the lowest level. A lot of these widows um, 
uh, were taking on extra jobs and using their pension to pay for their grandson to go to university. You pay to go to university like you pay to do everything. Why were they doing that? Because if you go to university, you don't do military service. Military service is a very horrible, horrible thing in Russia. Um, so they now suddenly know about corruption. If anything's in short supply, you know, you can get it if you've got money. Um, and they know it goes all the way up, and they know that he's extremely wealthy, but uh, they don't know how much he's got. There was some, some very good work done by a team of investigative journalists not long ago, I can't remember who now, just revealing just how much there are in Putin's bank accounts in Switzerland. And I mean, even I was shocked. Mm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, homestays I would uh, recommend. Mm. So when you're in that situation, do you explain to the people that you're staying with that you are a writer? I mean, are you taking notes and things? Or yeah, do I do say quiet? I'm a writer, which I, I wouldn't normally do. But, um, I mean, I don't normally do if I sort of meet people on the street or on a bus or, you know, hanging around. But ethically, uh, that's but, quite But if you're staying with people, and I've got my notebooks out, then, but then I sort of try and fudge it off. And they're not fudge it. And they're not fearful. Um, of me in any way. They don't think that I'm somehow, uh, that would be the old days, you know. Um, that's all gone now. They speak very openly um, and are as critical as they want to be, um, which is good in a way. But um, uh, I tried to, well, I think I say that in my reading, I won't say that. Um, in terms of pitching a book, writing a book, the process, how important is it really to, to have that framework as you have here to follow? How, I mean, in terms of, is, is that sort of liberating in some ways, but also limiting? Well, I think a travel book has to be about something. Mm. It can't be about hanging around in Russia. It's got to be about something. Framework is a very good uh, symbol, as is scaffolding as is a pattern in the carpet, if you know what I mean by that. You can look at a <coughs> brightly coloured pattern carpet and there's a pattern. It's about, so it has to be about something. And after all, once you've got any of those things, the pattern, the scaffolding or the framework, you can deviate from it as much as you like um, <coughs> and add appendages and digressions and this and that. Um, but I think a travel book does have to be about something. And you remember that there was um, <coughs> a kind of craze maybe 20 years ago it started, about the quest, and it was, you know, first person up Everest with their hand tied behind their back, or, you know, wearing a green bobble hat. And uh, in the search of the rare bogatry that grows on one slope in Nepal and is tended by a 100-year-old monk, and the whole quest. And that sort of reached its logical conclusion, because I think there has to be some sort of something about this quest that makes it worthwhile. It reached its logical conclusion in a very funny book uh, called Round Island with a Fridge. I don't know if you remember that. And this guy um, took a bet that he would travel round Ireland, hitchhike round Ireland with a fridge. And that was taking it to its logical conclusion. And since then, um, I think uh, that sort of played itself out because too many of the things before this fridge what was his name? Tony? I can't remember. You said... You, Tony. You remember. Is he here? No, no but what... Tony? Hawks. Hmm? Hawks? No, it wasn't Tony Hawks. Tony Hawks. Tony? Hawks. Hawks. 
Right, well done, well remembered. Thank you. I think before that, too many of the, um, these quests were stuntish, like oh, Everest wearing a green bubble hat, and I think that's played itself out now. So it's kind of uh, got a bit harder, but um, uh, I think you do have to have something. It has to be about something. And a piece as well, a travel piece as well. You can't write... You're going to Delhi. You can't write just a piece about Delhi. It needs to have an angle. Yeah, you yeah. need to have an angle. Anniversaries often are quite big for that kind of thing. So in the literary world as well, you know. I'm just but writing I, a piece I, now about the 200th anniversary of the launching of the Beagle. Um, so, yeah, if you are interested in writing anything as the hooks, raison d'etre, patterns, framework structures. I guess anniversaries is something that everybody sort of knows about, whereas this is actually a much more original um, framework. Yes, yeah, so I don't think you could write a whole book about an anniversary. Well, I suppose no. you could, but it'd be quite tricky. Um, uh, so so how, good a how good companions were these people in terms of that framework and in terms of where they led you? Well, they were marvellous. Um, some were a bit grumpy sometimes, um, but they were terribly easy to get along with. Um, I mean, dead people are, aren't they? <laughs> Fantastic companions. <laughs> Much easier than that other kind. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I listened to what they had to say, and uh, they did a, described a lot the landscape, which helped, particularly people like Turgenev, who do write about landscape, and so you could see the trees, the same trees, you know. In, in, many, in the same trees, the very same trees, and a lot of them planted trees, and so down these great big trees. And um, the things they ate, they wrote about a lot, some of them did anyway, and um, people they met, and about uh, you know, their feelings mediated through the landscape. And uh, I like that. Tell us about Turgenev's um, oak, oak tree. Yeah, Turgenev uh, planted an oak, and he said he wanted, uh, he wrote, he wanted everybody who came to touch it and say a prayer. And everybody did from the word go. And they've put um, a fence around it now to protect it, but you, you still can touch it. So and where is that? that? What, what was the... Okay, so uh, Turgenev, who was really one of my top faves, both as a writer and as a person, insofar as you can know a person through their work, which you sort of can, actually. Um, it's uh, called Spaskoilo Tovinova, and it's... Um, about probably two-hour drive south of the outer road of Moscow, not that far from uh, Tolstoy's estate, Yasna Palyana. And um, it was his ancestral estate on his maternal side. And he grew up there with... Um, and, of course, in those days, you owned an estate and you owned all the villages around and you owned many hundreds of serfs. You owned them. That was the end of it. And his mother was an absolute horrible tyrant and treated the serfs very badly. Many people did, but many people didn't. And um, absolutely astonishing, these stories. And they used to go uh, in the uh, winter to their very, very grand house in Moscow. And um, just sort of armies of horse-drawn carriages going up, taking pigs and geese and all the household servants and God knows what going up. They settled there. They come back again. And Turgenev was raised by governesses, like all young Russians of the upper classes then. And he came to love the estate very um, deeply. And then, like many of the writers in Mud and Stars, he was exiled um, by the Tsar on several occasions. Um, that meant exiled not from Russia, but from Moscow. 
um, or Petersburg and Petersburg both. And um, during these, this, for the, that would be always for expressing anti-Tsarist uh, opinions. Re you know, revolution was in the air. Not, not Bolshevik revolution by the, at that time, talking about the 1870s, but um, uh, of a relaxation of the Tsarist, you know, iron fist. And so he was exiled there, which was ideal for a writer. Um, and he sat there and wrote a lot of his best plays and novels there in Spaskolo Tovinova. And he's talked about the silence in the air and there was ideas in the air. And it's very, very quiet there now. It's open to the public, like most writers' houses, famous writers' houses in Russia. But nobody goes there. No one really goes to any of them except Tolstoy's. Um, and it's wonderful walking through the sort of creaking floor with the creaking floorboards, thinking about him being there, mm. and so much uh, still the same. And the preservation of writers' houses is one of the few things that Russia does really, really well, mm. really well. Mm. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. There's a certain irony, isn't there, to um, being sent off to s somewhere for your writing and your thoughts, which actually provides you with this opportunity the scope to, to write a lot continue. more bad things. Yeah, yeah. the censor is a character who uh, appears a lot in Modern Stars because they all wrote about the censor all the time and how absolutely ghastly he how, was. Uh, um, how did that work? Changing ones. You had to submit everything to the censor before publication. And uh, they used to say it came back as if it was splattered with blood always because of all the crossings out, you know, and this and that. And... Um, uh, they used to say, you know, uh, you know, whenever I write about a horse, they think I'm writing about freedom, which often they were, but a galloping horse was freedom, you know, so the censor could interpret anything any way he wanted, and uh, sort of agonizing work, then um, redoing it, again, trying to keep the censor happy, it's like the, in these days, trying to get planning permission for something, or extension <laughs> to your house, send it off, gets refused muck around with it, send it off again, gets refused, you know. And uh, it was terrible. It's a wonder anybody wrote anything. So Dostoevsky is another writer who was uh, exiled. And he was involved with the Decembrists, wasn't he? So a little bit earlier. Yeah. So this uh, febrile atmosphere um, came to a head with the Decembrists, um, as Julia says, which was a group of noblemen who were determined to actually go the whole way and foment rebellion. And Dostoevsky was um, involved with them, and uh, as was Pushkin in a more peripheral way. And um, they were uh, found out and sent to um, the Peter and Paul Fortress. And um, the Tsar uh, said that I think 35 of them or some number had to be executed and the rest were going to be uh, sent to... They didn't call it the gulag then, it was the labor camps, of which there were many. And um, one day, Dostoevsky and uh, these other ones who were condemned to death were hauled out and carted, literally, to Semyonovskaya Square, where the gallows were all set up and put in um, group rows. And it was three by three by three, because they could hang three at once. Priest goes round, reading the last rites to them all. And uh, the first three went up to stand in position for the noose. And Dostoevsky was in the next three going up. And at that moment, there was the sound of galloping hooves across the square. 
with a, a messenger with an order from the Tsar that the sentences were being commuted to um, banishment to a labor camp. And it turned out that that would have been the Tsar's intention all the time. It was a mock trial uh, from the word go, but one can only imagine what it meant to those guys standing there you know, in the snow. But it did mean that Dostoevsky went to, went to Siberia. For th he was three years in prison and then stayed there for a while after. And uh, that, of course, had a very um, seismic effect on his thinking. How could it not, really? Uh, to say it was hell was an understatement. Um, and he wrote a book about it called The House of the Dead, lightly fictionized, which I recommend to you. Well, actually, maybe not, because it's pretty depressing. Um, and uh, he came out very changed, really. And Dostoevsky was a very messianic figure, uh, obsessed with God, and tortured by self-doubt, and tortured by everything, really. And um, he uh, was, as I say, was obsessed with God. And he was also a compulsive gambler. His second wife... Quite a few of them were, weren't they? Yes, Pushkin was. Pushkin was yeah. as well, yeah. is probably the worst. And um, uh, his second wife, who was saintly, and she deserves a biography um, of her own. If, if I could read Russian better, I would do it myself. She said that she, he pawned his watch so often that she never knew what time it was. <laughs> and um, he was, suffered tremendously poor um, health all his life, emphysema, epilepsy... One of his kids died of epilepsy very at age three. Um, uh, hemorrhoids, oh, you name it, he had it. He was really ill. And he used to sit, he, I was the editor of several magazines. Was like, mag, literary magazines were the thing. And so then you'd sit in this, these tiny little windowless offices with some ghastly wood-burning thing, breathing it all in, then go out and it'd be minus 40, you know. It's not a climate that was conducive. And he lived mostly in the, in the cities. Mm. Um, not a climate that was conducive to um, a man of ill health. And he went to the spas all the time in, in um, Europe, which in, also they all did. It was thought that bad ams and places like that were taking the waters. Well, I'm sure it was healthier than being in Moscow, but... Um, you know, waters don't really do much good if you've got mm. proper illnesses. But when you go to his house, the thing that strikes you is the is the portrait. Yeah. In the great coat, isn't it? Yeah. He looks tortured. That's a very famous portrait, of which there's two, two, versions. Both, I mean, done by the author, Repin, his name was, and um, done by the artist. I mean, he did two, and one's in the Trechekov, and one is in Dostoevsky's house in. Um, Staraya Rusa, which is maybe three hours north of Moscow. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's all hunched up. He's got this big coat on, these long fingers like this. And you really feel, you can see the sort of torture and suffering that was, was his life, really. And I think that comes out of the, the sort of four really big novels. I think Karamazov probably in particular. You can see that anguish. And, I mean, a lot of those novels are hard going, in my opinion, you know. You've got to be quite committed. What's the sort of gateway drug to Dostoevsky if people are thinking that they might like to, to read him? Well, I think start with the short ones, for obvious reasons. And there are some short ones. Um, a House of the Dead is a very good book that I've mentioned already. Um, and, uh, yeah, there are some other short ones. can't remember the names now. But, yeah, do that. And then 
And then, you know, Karamazov, The Brothers Karamazov is a really good book, but it is, it is quite hard going when it gets onto long tracts of um, spiritual philosophy, really. Um, yeah. Mm. You mentioned that Tolstoy's house is the one that people make yeah. the pilgrimage yeah, He's a superstar, to. isn't he? Yeah. Very much in the Russian mind as well as, as, well as for us, I guess. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yes. I mean, they all had, they've all had postage stamps. Even people like Leskov, who's not known here, I told you about, they've all had lots of stamps and um, much celebrated everywhere. And Tolstoy's house is, uh, in a, is in a state, very beautiful. And um, one of the really interesting things about going to Tolstoy's house is unlike any of the others, you know, he lived into the 20th century and so he interacted with you know, gear, cars, cameras, cine cameras, audio recording devices. And when you go around his house in the last room, um, there's, uh, they're playing on a continuous loop, a tape, it used to be called a tape, shall we call it now, of him speaking. Actually, him it was like hearing the cat speak. Absolutely incredible. And there's a translation in English of what he's saying and his voice and going on. How lovely. And of course, you don't have that for any of the others. Yeah. And uh, on YouTube, you can uh, see um, a vid what do you call it? A city film, you know, moving footage of him walking around. And it's, I think it's so wonderful. Mm. And um, all the crowds, he died. He left his wife and died. He had, was on a train journey to get, to get away from her, really and um, got ill on the train, so they had to stop at a small railway station, and uh, they put him in the station master's iron bed, and that's where he died. And the news got out, and uh, his, this, what, this wife, he'd been married to her for 65 years, she'd had 13 of his children, and um, she found out where he was, and she made it there on a specially hired train with two companions. And you can see that on YouTube as well, and I really advise you to look at it. They are, these three figures, of course, they're all walking like Charlie Chaplin, get off the train and go to the station master's house where Tolstoy lays dying. And Tolstoy sort of went bonkers um, in, his, in his dotage. He'd been a little bit bonkers beforehand. Um, but he sort of went right off the rails and he had these disciples or apostles who hung on his every word and their big aim was to get him away from his wife who was a sort of symbol of, you know, the shackles of world, the world. Um, and so you see uh, when she took, Sonia her name was, or Sophia, she's called both things, is tottering towards this station master's door you see it, and you see a, sub, a bold bloke opening the door, looking out, seizes her and slamming the door. And then you see her, this wife of 65 years, looking through the window. Oh. And once he was in, unconscious, they let her in. Yeah, and then you see, um, so he lay there until he could be properly taken. And by that time, the word was out. And so like thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, coming to pay tribute to this dead man who taught them so much. He's a very complicated figure, who isn't? But, um, you know, it was all um, celibacy this, celibacy that, celibacy the other. 
and yet shagging all the surf girls at the same time. You know, it's quite hard. He was a very holy man, had a lot of things to say, but it's hard to take it too seriously. Um, and I think probably um, the novels are more worth reading um, than the, um, all this endless, endless, endless philosophy. And these apostles um, edited all his works in the decades after he died. And it's sort of, you know, some astonishing number of volumes. Like all geniuses, genii, uh, geniuses, he was, um, he never stopped working. I find that's really depressing about any really, really great writer or great person, really. They never bloody stop working. But then they you work all the time. But then you talk about Pushkin actually only having time to write when yes. he had a sexually transmitted disease. Well, he was the exception, and I think poets probably are on the whole. No offence to poets. Some of my best friends are poets. Um, but um, he was a hard worker, Pushkin, but he was also a heroic shagger. And um, there's a letter, I've seen it, from, um, by one of his friends. And it's when he was writing Eugene Onegin. And um, this friend says, uh, Pushkin has almost finished his long poem. That was Eugene Onegin. Uh, one or two more doses of the clap and it'll be in the bag. Because he was such a ferocious womanizer that... Um, that's how it was. I've seen that letter, and it was a very good friend. Um, and of course, Pushkin he left a lot of work behind him. That all that said, he died very young in a duel, completely pointless. He was in his 30s, a completely pointless duel. Um, pointless. Um, yeah, to imagine what he could have achieved. Let's talk a little bit um, about the travelling side. We can't talk about Russia without the Trans-Siberian. What was your yeah. experience yeah. of that? Fantastic. I would advise anybody who does the Trans-Siberian to do it in winter. Not just because you'll be the only foreigner on the train, although that's kind of nice, but there's a lot more space. And uh, there's something amazing about... Um, you keep just keep... I mean, I love trains anyway. Keep rattling along. And, of course, the snow is, you know, as high as the ceiling. And we keep rattling along, rattling along. And then for what seems like days. And then suddenly, often in the middle of the night, you draw up at this monumental station. You know, mostly Stalinist era. It looks like a, an enormous wedding cake. Really well lit. This enormous platform with a couple of babushki shuffling along it, selling something, usually those, um, you know, those dried fish that look like table tennis bats. Um, uh, and then you said, when it stops, it stops for half an hour. So you get out, you see everybody, you know, you've got to put masses and masses of layers on. You walk up and down the platform, then you get back on again, and then it's the tiger again. The tiger is this coniferous sash of land that basically goes from, from here to here, and the beyond the tiger is pretty much the tundra and the, Ar the Russian Arctic. And um, just, you know, Chekhov said that only migrating birds know where the tiger ends. And I just think that gives you a real sense of the, um, the size of Russia. I didn't start in Moscow. I avoided Moscow and Petersburg as much as I could because they're very unrepresentative of Russia and they were representative in my guy's time as well. Um, so I think I started um, east, east of the Urals, 
uh, basically Russia is this one side of the Urals and that side of the Urals. I started east of the Urals in Yekaterinburg, I started. And then uh, I went uh, for four days along. And then I got off at Irkutsk, basically in the middle of Siberia. And from there, you go down to Lake Baikal. Lake Baikal is, as you know, the lake of superlatives. Deepest, the this, the that, the that. And it is really amazing. It doesn't freeze until February. So if you go in December, as I did, or January, um, you've, still, you've got the, you know, those sparkling blue, incredibly deep waters and um, people fishing and uh, it's a fantastic um, fish market there. And um, uh, the journey from Irkutsk down to Baikal is also very wonderful. Um, and it's... Um, the uh, masses and masses of uh, ethnic groups, of course, in Russia still now. Um, and um, some of the ones there have got their own radio stations, you can hear their language, and uh, lots of their wooden huts and buildings and traditions and so on. And um, I would have very much liked to uh, have continued further on the Trans-Siberian, mm -hmm. but um, I couldn't. And I was really on Chekhov's tail then, because he did a journey um, to uh, the, the Far East, to the island of Sakhalin, because he felt he had a man with a, he was a doctor, as you know, and he was a man with a great social conscience, and he wanted to write a report about the prisons in Sakhalin, it's a prison island, and the Gilyak, who are one of the indigenous groups there. And he also wanted to see Siberia, you know, he was a writer, and um, he um, wrote a book, which I very much recommend to you, about his travels in Siberia. So I tried to go to the places he'd been, you know, and um, eat the things he'd eaten. And uh, yeah, yeah. sometimes people say to me, um, when I'm talking about mud and stars, if I could have dinner tonight with one of them. Yes, who would it be? Who would it be? And it would be Chekhov. I mean, he was not only a genius, but very human. And, and also, you could discuss his short story. I could. <laughs> It'd be lovely. In Russian. It's very funny and very humorous. And, uh, yeah, deeply, deeply human. Mm. And, um, yeah, I admired him hugely. Mm. Mm. Um, I wonder whether anybody has questions for Sarah. Roddy has got the microphone there. It might be about literature or it might be about top tips on the Trans-Siberian, whatever you fancy. I understand that the Tolstoy family were going to take over his estate from, from the government. Is that, has that happened? The Tolstoy's family have taken over his estate from the government. Is that the question? Mm. Yes. Yeah. I think that is the case. I think that is the case, although I believe the government still have a role in the administration of it. And um, some, I think they have some sort of role. For example, there's a hotel on the estate for tourists to stay in which is a very Soviet sort of affair. And I've got a feeling the government still own that. And a restaurant um, for people to eat in, which is actually rather good, very, um, you know, rustic. And I think that part of it is owned by the government. And I think the government have other sort of roles, but I do believe the family own the land and um, do most of the administration of the guided tours and this and that. You don't have to take a guided tour. Um, but it's really worth, worth going. It's very Have you been? Yeah, it's very beautiful. It's lovely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots of things to see, objects, you know. 
other questions here. about Russia or indeed any of other... I mean, you have a wonderful travel writer here who's travelled all over and uh, has lots of, lots of experience. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm here because I read Terra Incognita, which I really loved. And you've obviously moved on to places that are a little easier to get to and have got a whole load of culture that you can look at. Um, it, is that a transition that a lot of authors make, do you think? They do the hard exploring stuff. hard stuff. Where did you say you'd been? I didn't catch it. No, Terror no, ter Your book. I've, oh, I've yeah. read Terror, your Terror book. Terror Incognita, but you yeah. didn't go there. N I'm afraid not, no. <laughs> you didn't need to. You read the book. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I was going to add on. So you, the question is, is it a regular transition to start off going to hard places and then go to easy places? Well, I don't think you could find much evidence of that. Colin Thubron, who I'm sure you know his work, whom I very much admire, he's toiling away now, finishing a book about a journey down the Amur River. Um, Which is where? Well, it's China and Russia, but mostly the Chinese part. There's nothing um, easy about that. He had to ride a horse uh, a lot of the way. Well, he's an accomplished horseman, but he had a guide who was apparently hopeless, and all the horses were hopeless as well, and it all kept getting tossed off, or him and Colin and his guide. So, um, and Collins, one of Collins' first books was about Cyprus. You could possibly see a trajectory in the other way. Uh, Paul Theroux's last book was a road trip through Mexico. I mean, it's not the South Pole or anything, but um, it was quite, um, what's that book called? A Place of Something About Serpents or Snakes. It came out last year before last. Really good. Um, you know, it's pretty tough uh, traveling in Mexico on your own in the car. You get stopped every five minutes by the police to give them money. And he says in his book, what happens is you get stopped by a policeman who searches your car, gets you on your way. And then a mile down the road, you get stopped by another policeman who finds cocaine in the boot because the first policeman... <laughs> you know, I mean, innovating. There's a lot of that. So that's not very hard. Uh, I mean, that's not very easy. Um, Trying to think of other people. I mean, do you, do you think though that you need to kind of create a bit of a reputation early on for being, you know, having the bravado? Not really. No, I don't think that. You no. weren't conscious of that of doing that. No, not at all. My first book was about a Greek island. Um, my second book was about Chile. Both very easy places. Um, no, I don't think so. And it's a, edging perilously close to stuntishness. And certainly in the polar regions, um, all these endless books about, well, you know, have got blokes with frozen beards on the cover, seeing how dead they, about seeing how dead they can get. I think that's kind of <laughs> extremely uninteresting. Mm. Um, and indeed, my own travels in the Antarctic well, couldn't have been easier, really. I was, I was there for seven months, but um, uh, uh, I was, there was never fewer than two of us. I didn't do any sledge pulling or anything like that. Um, You're a lightweight, Sarah Wheeler. Yeah, no, I am. I don't aspire to. The one thing I really don't like is when people call me an explorer. Because that's, you know, first of all, I don't want to be one. Secondly, I don't have any of the skills required. And thirdly, it's rather unpleasant, kind of as if I'm making out of something I'm not, mm. you know. Like I'm showing off about. Don't I, don't, do. no. I don't want to be an explorer. Tell, tell us finally about your next project, because this is a, this is going to be an exciting one. Isn't I it, hope as well? so. I hope so. I want to write a book about the Bronx. Uh, okay, there's five boroughs in New York. It's the last frontier. Um, why does no one really know anything about it? 
Um, and there's 160 languages spoken in the Bronx. So having sort of gone out to see the world, I thought, well, let's go there and have the world come to me. And so how will you approach that? Well, I don't really know. I'm going shortly, uh, in two weeks, in fact, for a month, um, to scope it out. And I'm doing the reading now and see if I get an idea about how I might structure it. Um, but I like America, and I like Americans, or most of them. And I like New York, and um, I fancy it. I've written, I have written one book about America uh, about four books ago, I think, and it was um, about uh, six women, five English women and one American, who travelled in America in the middle two quarters of the 19th century, which I, I think is the most interesting part of American history, is when America became itself, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, it ends in the 1870s with the railroads when it became itself. Um, and... Um, so it started off with Fanny Trollope, and it's about second act. It's about women who are 50. I was turning 50 then, and um, second acts in a new world was the subtitle. Mm. And um, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Travelled a lot, um, not not in New York, and um, uh, I, I kind of fancy. Uh, I just fancy yeah, I'm very interested in the fact that why um, everybody knows so much about Brooklyn, let alone Manhattan. No one knows anything about the Bronx. It's only an interesting history. Um, well, we so shall look forward we'll see, to it. We'll see. Absolutely. Good luck with that one. And thank you so much for being here today to take us on a tour of Russia and, and its literature. Sarah will, of course, be over signing there. So do, if you've got any questions, please go and carry on the conversation over there. Thank Thanks you. for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Wheeler. Thank you.